Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. While people were still letting the wind blow them in various directions, men like Henry Ford were putting their faith in the gasoline engine. The cars we drive have changed the life and face of our nation. We all know that motor vehicle registration is hitting new peaks. And we know too well that traffic jams are costing us time and money. Clearly, we must have more good roads. Highways were pushed across the desert. They are an indispensable part of our American way of life. They also make a gruesome contribution to our American way of death. Are we building cities for people or for automobiles? Will the 21st century bring a new era of human freedom and mobility? Or simply a world filled with autos and all that traffic? It's Notes from America. I'm Nancy Solomon, in for Kai Wright. As we just heard, our country has seen an unprecedented amount of investment in infrastructure. It started spiking after World War II. And it's not just roads. We built the Golden Gate Bridge, the Hoover Dam. And this one slays me. The Empire State Building was constructed in 13 months. And of course, there are the interstate highways. Congress responded with the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, providing the staggering sum of $51 billion to be spent by the states on highway construction by 1971. The most talked about phase of the act is the interstate highway system, a 41,000-mile network of our most important roads. This was a big win for the automobile industry, which had been lobbying for a centralized highway system since the 1930s. In fact, General Motors designed what it would like and showed it off with an exhibit at the 1939 World's Fair. Roads ripped straight through cities, splitting neighborhoods apart. My grandmother was a 70-year-old widow that came to her house in September and gave her a dollar and a piece of paper saying, the land is now ours, you have to go. We'll eventually give you an estimate of what we're willing to pay. And they just squeezed people. That's Fred Salvucci. He's an engineer who would go on to propose the most expensive highway project in American history, the Big Dig. Boston's Big Dig is a case study on everything that can go wrong when cities set out to build a big, ambitious project. The excess time and money it took to complete the system of highway tunnels is a pointed example of why so many of us are cynical about infrastructure in America. My guest disrupts the commonly accepted narrative about the Big Dig with an audio series named for the controversial project. Ian Koss hosts The Big Dig podcast, produced by GBH Public Media in Boston. He joins us now to share his reporting and help us think through what other cities can learn from the hard lessons of The Big Dig. Welcome, Ian. So glad to be here. By the way, if you're listening tonight in Boston or you have ties to that city, we especially want to hear from you. Tell us, how did The Big Dig impact your community? And thanks so much to GBH for airing this show because the Big Dig loomed large for so many of us with Boston Connections. And that's where we're going to start. I, Ian, I, we're both from Massachusetts. Yep. I grew up in Lowell and Newton. What, what about you? I'm a little further west, Pioneer Valley for those out there. 
And, uh, you know, the big dig was named for this mat, this, these massive tunnels that were created to take an old elevated highway mm -hmm. that cut through central Boston and was constantly choked with traffic. Yep. So describe the big dig and, and tell us what makes it different from other highways. Yeah. The big dig is really interesting in that it comes about at the moment in history when the tide is kind of turning in terms of public opinion towards highways. You know, we had this huge building spree of the interstates through the 50s and the 60s. And in the early 70s, you know, by that time you have the environmental movement, you have a lot of citizens organizing to stop highways because of the, you know, the destruction it caused in, in their neighborhoods. And the Big Dig is born out of that moment. It's born out of the activism of that backlash. And so from the beginning, the idea is that this is going to be a different kind of highway project, one that puts people in neighborhoods first. Um, and so the idea was to take this elevated highway that ran straight through the heart of Boston, tear it down, and put it underground. So you restore the surface of the city and you retain, you know, that smooth transportation of the highway. Um, so that was the dream. It was kind of, we want to have it all. We want to have our city back, and we want to have the highway. Um, and, of course, it turned out to be much, much more complicated than, you know, than people thought at the beginning. You and I are from two different generations. I'm a little bit older. I grew up before the big dig. Right. I spent hours of my youth in the back seat of the car, stuck in traffic. So what are your memories of the elevated, <laughs> the old central artery? Stuck in traffic. Stuck in traffic. I mean, it didn't yeah. matter if we were we were going to the North Shore to see our cousins or we were going to the airport to pick yep. someone up. You 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 just got stuck there. Yeah. And you know, and getting into the Callahan tunnel, oh my God. Like you couldn't get into that tunnel without people yelling out their windows at each other. And yep. it was just, you know, many lanes getting into yeah, yeah. A one or two. So I think what I'm, you have to understand about that highway is, you know, because a lot of cities have big elevated highways through the middle of them, and most of them did not get torn down. And part of what you have to understand about the Boston case is that this was an especially bad highway, not just socially, you know, in terms of the fabric of the city, but functionally. It was one of the earliest elevated highways built anywhere in the country. Um, and so it had these narrow turns. It didn't have any breakdown lanes. Uh, the, the lanes were kind of narrow, too. Um, and the worst part was that it had on and off ramps just constantly. All the businesses, all the like the city hall, everybody in downtown wanted ramps when they built this thing. And so if you look at over you know, like aerial shots of it, it looks like this weird kind of like millipede salamander through the heart of the city. It's just like sprouting off ramps constantly at just, you know, at every turn, yeah. which really made it impossible to drive on. Yeah. Well, and I mentioned that you were of a younger generation because, right, so when you're growing up, this is yeah. when the big dig is actually happening. So tell us a little bit about that because it really is astounding how long it took. Yeah. I think of myself as the big dig generation, me and my peers of, you know, Massachusetts youth, because um, yeah, it started in the, the construction, I should say, started in the early 1990s. I was, I don't know, just barely walking maybe. And it goes on for 16 years. Um, so I'm out of high school by the time it's done. Um, so it really was this project that just went on and on and on. And, uh, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, like, you know, if folks in the Boston area have memories, like it's not if, you know, like, yeah. if you spent time in Massachusetts or Boston sometime between the 80s, 90s or 2000s, like you encountered this, you heard about it, you talked about it because it was just inescapable. Do you have a big dick tattoo? Um, not yet. <laughs> that that would be the hallmark of the generation that grew up during the big dig. You know, when, when I think about it, I always think of my father because yeah. he had lived his whole life in Boston. He really, like, truly loved the city, thought it was the most beautiful place on earth. Um, and he had a cab driver's knowledge of all city streets in Boston, not that he was a cab driver. Um, and when the project was approved, he was... Super upset about it because he was 70 years old and he knew that the the center of the city was going to be torn up for the rest of his life, which wow. 
is basically what what happened. Yeah. Um, so you must have come across those kinds of stories, right? Like, so what is the emotional fabric that uh, that makes up the Boston experience of the the Big Dig? I mean, I think this is in some ways what I set out to try and catalog in this series was not just you know, the development and the story of this project, but kind of the emotional arc of it, because it has a really kind of profound journey. It begins like the earliest kind of conception and genesis of this idea, like I said, is in the early 70s into the 80s. Um, and at that time, it's this like moonshot idea, this visionary idea. You know, cities are not doing this. You know, this is not just, you know, par for the course. Um, and so there were people who really excited about it. And you had broad political support. And what happens during the construction is the narrative of the project, the perception of it, um, changes so profoundly from something that, you know, people were really kind of proud of and inspired by to something that was an object of ridicule and just, you know, constant outrage and scandal. And then if we sort of complete the long winding journey of this thing, you know, if you take a walk through downtown Boston today and you ask strangers on the street, like, oh, what do you think of this, this, you know, linear park, this greenway that runs where the highway used to be, you know, people feel pretty good about it. Um, so that is the emotional arc of the big yeah. dig, right? From vision to derision to a weird kind of mixed redemption. Um, I think of it as a hero's journey that this project went on. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, like I said, that's what we, we tried to capture. And so, I mean, we're going to spend a good part of this hour talking about the cautionary tale and the lessons uh, and expand it out to the rest of the country. Uh, but what would you say are some of the, the, what is the cautionary tale? What are some of the lessons? Yeah, there are so many. Um, I think of the lessons of the Big Dig in two categories, and we can spend, we could spend all night on either or the subcategories of the categories. I mean, but here's what I would say. There is the technical stuff, right? Wonky policy stuff that could have been done differently. And this is about how it was funded, how it was permitted, how it was contracted, how it was managed, right? There are, and every step of the way, you know, things pretty much think, if something could go wrong, if a stumbling block could be stumbled on, it went wrong and it was stumbled on in the history of this project. That's one side. The other side of the Big Dig story that I think is really important to study and learn from is the narrative piece, the story of the story, if that makes sense. Because that cynicism that grew up around this project at some point made it almost impossible for the project to function. And so I think there's a lot to learn there as a public in terms of the way we tell the story of infrastructure projects. We're talking to Ian Koss, host of the podcast, The Big Dig. It's a story of infrastructure mired in scandal that is all too familiar in America. I'm Nancy Solomon in for Kai Wright. Just ahead, we hear from you. What's your big dig? And we've got Boston callers waiting on the lines and we're going to hear from them. Uh, What's the public project that seems to go on forever in your town? Tell us how that's affecting your community by calling or texting 844-745-TALK. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Nancy Solomon, in for Kai Wright. The great question of the 70s is, 
Shall we surrender to our surroundings? Or shall we make our peace with nature and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water? That's Republican President Richard Nixon giving his 1970 State of the Union address. Restoring nature to its natural state is a cause beyond party and beyond factions. It has become a common cause of all the people of this country. It is a cause of particular concern to young Americans because they, more than we, will reap the grim consequences of our failure to act on programs which are needed now if we are to prevent disaster later. Clean air, clean water, open spaces, these should once again be the birthright of every American. If we act now, they can be. And Nixon did act. That same year he signed the National Environmental Policy Act, it required that all federally funded projects create environmental impact statements. Those would go a long way to protecting communities from unwanted projects, but it also doomed big infrastructure projects. We're talking about one of the biggest infrastructure projects in American history with Ian Koss. He's the host of a new podcast from GBH Public Media in Boston called The Big Dig. Bostonians, we're still taking your stories about what life was like during the decades of construction. What do you think of it now? And no matter where you are or where you grew up, we want to hear from you. What's your infrastructure project in your community you want to talk about? Call us or text us. So I was so surprised, Ian, to learn that Richard Nixon was the president that brought us the environmental impact studies. Yeah, the National Uh, Environmental Policy Act. And that... And I thought the part of your podcast where you talk about sort of the unintended consequences of those statements and the ways that they can block not just bad projects, but good projects. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, tell me about, tell us about that, about learning about these statements and, and the two sides of the coin. Yeah. So when the environmental impact statement it first begins, right, in the 1970s. These things are a few pages long. It's, it's something that the state, you know, or has to prepare as part of a big project. By the time you get to the big dig, the environmental impact statement is in the 80s, was thousands of pages long, right? So it had started as this kind of little bureaucratic process became a huge, huge part of planning any big project. The key to understanding the environmental impact statement, because I realize this sounds like a lot of word salad and jargon, the key, key thing here is that if somebody, anybody in the community, in the public, feels that a project has not adequately done its environmental impact statement, they can bring a lawsuit and they can sue to stop that project, right? And this is, you know, what makes the impact statement such a profound change in the way we build infrastructure because it creates incredible leverage um, for any kind of organized group to stop a project. I think the Big Dig is a fascinating case study in this story because, to me, it captures... It captures that era of change, right? It begins in the 1970s. The Big Dig itself is kind of part of, you know, that upswell of citizen activism. Like, that is the ethos of this project, is to be a project that is good for the community, right? Fast forward, it's winding its way through its own environmental impact statement, and it suddenly finds itself, you know, on the receiving end, right, of that same kind of like upswell of activism and opposition. So I think that there's an interesting irony there in the way this project kind of encountered its own environmental impact statement. And it's complicated, you know, because I don't want to sit here and say that the environmental impact statement is a bad thing and all it does is slow us down. The environmental impact process is an incredibly important forum in which, you know, voices are heard, ideas are voiced, improvements are made, and all of that was true for the Big Dig. But it also opens this little leverage point, this little doorway um, that can be weaponized, right? Yes, exactly. And there are, and that happens in the case of the Big Dig. You have some very organized local interests, most notably a parking lot owner in East Boston who is angry at the project for taking a piece of his parking lot. Uh, and he said, no, 
I'm not going to sell you my parking lot. I'm not going to give you my parking lot. You're going to have to, you're going to have to fight me for it. And he used the environmental impact statement um, to kind of wage war against this project. So I think, again, the big dig, it captures that complexity, you know, of how the process can really improve the project and very nearly killed it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about things for the public good, big, expensive projects that right. we need all over the country. I mean, you know, we may never see high-speed rail, I fear, yeah. in this country uh, and because of what it would take to get it built and get yeah. it approved. I did an event of just a few weeks ago at Boston City Hall. Some of the transportation planning staff invited us, you know, me and my co-producer, Isabel Hibbard. We went and did a, uh, a talk with their transportation planners, which, I mean, I had total imposter syndrome. Like, wait, you want to talk to me about, like, you do this. This is your job. But um, we show up and uh, we started, and it was real kind of, the younger generation of planners and staff that came uh, who had sort of heard the lore of this project and talking to them, they were like, I can't imagine doing something of this scale. Like we try and put in a bike lane. We try and take away one parking spot. And it's like, we're bogged down in meetings for, for weeks or years. And like the idea of tearing down a highway, building a tunnel to the airport, you know, like building this bridge, like, it was inconceivable to them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is, we we have to reckon with that as a nation, that we made it more difficult to build things for very good reasons, but we have also made it very difficult to build things. Yes, exactly. Okay, let's go to the phones. We've got folks from Boston calling in. Uh, let's hear from Richard in Somerville. Uh, hi there. Uh, I've lived in the Boston area since the late 70s, so I've seen this whole evolution and about 10 minutes ago, Ian mentioned how so many things that could go wrong did go wrong. I think one of the biggest examples of that, uh, fairly soon after the project finished, in the Ted Williams extension tunnel, you might remember, there was a giant ceiling panel that fell on a car and it killed a woman. Uh, she was an immigrant from Brazil. Uh, they later on found out that the company who was responsible for the epoxy for those tiles had had shortchanged the process. I, I don't remember if they were punished in any way. But the thing that really brings it home for me is that many years later, I got a new job, and one of my colleagues, it turns out, was in the car directly behind that one, uh, the one wow. that killed the woman. So if my if my colleague had just you know left home maybe three minutes faster, she might not be here now. It's just it's just yeah. incredible to me. Well, and uh, right, I think that that is the story. You know, it could have been anybody, and people really felt that. And uh, Ian, you do a marvelous job of telling the story. I'm not going to be able to come up with her name, but telling the story of this woman uh, in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So the woman who was killed, her name is Milena Del Valle. She was from Costa Rica. And uh, we spoke with her pastor, um, a woman named Lisa de Paz. And uh, Lisa gave the um, the eulogy at her church after Milena died, and um, she told just um, this powerful story about all these you know these public officials came, um, people from the project came to the funeral. Everyone recognized that this was totally unacceptable um, and a tragedy for the city and for the state. Um, and the the thing I still think about from that interview is you know I asked her if she's still bitter about you know, what the loss of her friend and what this project did to her community. Um, and, you know, what she said to me is that they were all, all those people there, we were all victims. They were all victims of this. The people who installed that ceiling panel, they were victims of this tragedy too. Um, and that they, they deserve mercy is what she said to me and that she prays for them. Um, but yeah, it was an incredibly emotional moment to hear that story. And it was an emotional moment, I think, for the city at that time. It seems like part of the equation is that people genuinely do feel that this was an improvement for Boston. So, yes, it's tragic that it wasn't done properly and somebody lost their life. But at the other end, you get to something that mm -hmm. people feel good about. You go on a uh, a, a trip cross town yep. uh, with someone in your family, and it's like so much easier for her yeah. to get to work. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to oversell it here. I mean, perhaps we'll get a caller who can, you know, contradict me on this. But uh, 
there's there's plenty to criticize in the way the project turned out too. Not everyone's happy with the whole project, for sure. But I mean, in terms of you know restoring that surface area of the city, yeah. you know, and the fact that you can walk across the Greenway to the North End from City Hall and get a, a cannoli. Um, the fact that you can get to the airport, the fact that you can get through downtown, um, it it has been transformative. And in raw economic terms, something like whenever I would interview people who had worked on the project or had been close to it, you know, they would say, I mean, look at the, you know, look at the real estate development, look at the businesses, look at the jobs um, that have kind of flowed into the area around this project. It has undeniably transformed that part of the city. Yeah. I believe we have a caller who actually worked on the big dig Excellent. Uh, from Kingswood, Texas. Greg, you're on the line. Hey, Nancy. Hey, I worked on the big dig for about four years, and it was the most amazing project. And one of the benefits, not only what the, uh, the gentleman was saying about being able to open up green spaces in the city of Boston. Boston is the most terrifi- terraformed city in North America. Um, it what has been rebuilt and mean? rebuilt. That means that where human beings have rebuilt the city. Uh, you know, there used to be a ridge of hills in the 1770s around Boston. Oh, yeah. Those were all taken down and used as fill to build a port, build out the port of Boston. Um, but anyway, the the thing I want to say, we had so many engineering students from all over the world mm. who were apprenticed to different trades, uh, different companies, and they flowed through the whole project and saw what's possible. And that um, they, it was, they were so, everyone was so excited. Yeah. And there were so many complications that were, uh, handled by people just, you know, figuring it out and working through the problem. But, you know, people saw what is possible on such a grand scale that we haven't seen in this country since uh, FDR's uh, projects like the Golden Gate Bridge, hmm. the uh, CCC, things like that. These are not spending money. You know, you see the political parties who say, oh, you can't spend money. You can't spend money. This is investment. And infrastructure is the biggest investment with a return on that investment in the country. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call, Greg. Ian, anything yeah. you want to add to that? Well, I think what what Greg's, you know, perspective highlights for me is just the the contradictions of this project are so wild and that you know, you could talk to people who were, you know, in the public just hearing about it who would so my, I mean, just to give you a sense of my personal perspective, like growing up, I heard nothing but bad things about the Big Dig, right? Like around the kitchen table, on the news, like it was just all bad. Boondoggle, fiasco, debacle, pick your word, big mess, big hole, big pig, big lie, right? And then, you know, you talk to people who worked on it um, and there's so much pride, um, and just like Greg was describing, I mean, there were engineering marvels that were going on. There were problems that were being solved. Um, so the, it, it is, it, and it contains all of that. Um, and I remember I interviewed one, a foreman who worked for almost a decade on the project, a man named Frank Martinez, you know, who literally like, go to work when it was dark out and his kids were still asleep and he'd come home and it was dark already and his kids were already in bed for years and years and years. And he told me how he'd, he'd come above ground and walk the streets of Boston and he didn't want to wear the shirt or the hard hat that said identified him as someone who worked on the big dig because people were so furious about this project. Um, and that, yeah, that, that disconnect between how it felt for the people who were doing it uh, and how it looked on the outside. Yeah. It, was, it was just incredibly stark. Well, and I thought you made an interesting point towards the very end of the podcast about the role that... Uh, that reporters and journalists played yeah. of just the the gotcha, mm-hmm. finding every f- mistake, finding fault with everything, and how that that's part of what drives the skepticism and the lack of uh, commitment that people have to spending yeah. tax dollars on projects that are important to, to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. 
And I mean, I, I don't intend to sort of like call out or criticize the incredibly hardworking reporters who covered the story, and I interviewed many of them for the series. But I do think the story of The Big Dig kind of makes you think about the role of journalism in civic life. And part of it is to be the watchdog and shine a light on the problems where they exist. And part of them is part of the role is to like enable you know, government to function and enable the public to understand the investments we're making. Um, and I think I, I think the media struggled in many ways to communicate to the public the enormity of what this project was and the problems it was having in a way that that allowed us to understand them both. Um, I had this, there's this conversation I had, this is not in the podcast, with um, a transportation reporter at the Boston Globe who covered the project in its in its final years. And he told me when the tunnels finally opened, right? It's been years and years of work. The tunnels are opening, big ceremonies coming up. The mood in the newsroom at that point was go out and find something that's wrong with this thing and don't come back until you do. Oh, wow. That was essentially the directive in the newsroom because at that point, the you know, the public had felt misled and burned so many times by the, this project as it had unfolded that at that point, you know, the editors were not were not, you know, ready to give the project that win. You know, yeah. they were find find something that's wrong with it. And, you know, he dutifully went out and, and found stories about little things that could go wrong. And he told me looking back now, it's like most of those stories that he wrote in that month of the opening were not actually big problems. And that in hindsight, maybe the cynicism did sink in too deep. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I mean, speaking as a reporter, I think that's a constant uh, hazard of the job, Yeah, is that you become so oriented towards looking for problems. Yeah. And so it's sort of like a, you know, a hammer always finds a nail. Right, I forget right, what right, that right. saying is, but you you find the problems. Yeah. Um, and I remember one of the things in the podcast was about how, you know, like it was over budget. Well, yep. any big project like that's going to be over budget. Like yeah. That's just how they go. Yes. Right? Yeah, and I think part of what's important to remember, too, is like if you go back to the highway building era of the 50s and 60s, at that time, the media was just like, yeah, build highways. And there was no second guessing and there was no scrutinizing the details and the plans. Right. So in some ways, like the pendulum, these pendulums swing right um, from the media being kind of like all the cheerleader of big public works to by the time of the big dig being very skeptical. Our phones are open and we'd love to have your stories and questions in this conversation. What's your big dig? I'm talking about that seemingly endless infrastructure project where you live. Call or text or tell us how it's impacting your community just ahead on Notes from America. Hi everyone, my name is Rahima and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America with Kai Wright. I'm Nancy Solomon in for Kai tonight. I'm joined by Ian Koss host of the podcast, The Big Dig, from GBH in Boston. It's about a notorious infrastructure effort that earned a moment of re-examination for what it can teach us about building big, ambitious things in America. 
you know, Ian, an, another example of a very necessary project that is likely to become the next big dig. It's called the Gateway Tunnel, and it's the new rail tunnel under the Hudson River between New Jersey and New York City. The existing tunnel was built a century ago and is crumbling. Uh, and the entire Northeast train network from Boston to Washington is dependent on this one aging tunnel. In 2010, then-Governor Chris Christie cut the project to build a new tunnel under the Hudson. Christie said the tunnel was poorly designed and would cost too much money. You know, there comes a point where you just say, I can't. I can't do it. And I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to blindly go down the road and say, well, someone else will figure it out. Christie needed money to repair roads in New Jersey, and he didn't want to have to raise the gas tax to do it. So despite a design process that had taken 15 years and federal money already delivered for it, he canceled the tunnel project. This decision is final. Uh, there is no opportunity for reconsideration of this decision on my part. I am done. We are moving on. Christie was forced to return the federal funding. And now, 13 years later, the federal funds to build a tunnel under the Hudson have just been approved. And now it's going to take many, many years wow. to build. So uh, what did we learn from the big dig that might tell us what to expect about getting mm. this tunnel built under the Hudson? Or what did we not learn? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that it makes me think about is that one of the ways I think about the Big Dig is as a kind of outlier. You know, it is the the project that did get built, that did survive in an era where, for many, many reasons, so many projects died on the vine, right? And part of what's so remarkable about it is that a project like this, or like the Gateway Tunnel, is not built by one administration, right? Um, Fred Salvucci, who was you know, really known as the architect of the big dig. He has this, you know, line that he said to me a couple times. These projects are conceived under one administration. They're funded under a second. They're permitted under a third. They're built under a fourth. And they're opened under a fifth. Yeah. Right? That is the life cycle of a major infrastructure project. It's measured in decades. And so... And all you yep. need is a guy who needs some money for roads right. to get in the way. Yeah, and all it takes is one person exactly yeah. along that years-long journey to say, meh, this isn't my dream. This isn't my priority. No, thank you. Um, so what's so remarkable about the Big Dig is that it was passed like a baton, you know, from across several administrations, Democrat and Republican, you know, through the era of austerity and small government and private, you know, through the 80s and 90s into the 2000s, and it survived. Um, and it's so perilous, right? The pathway, and I think, you know, what the, you know, the the tunnel project you're talking about in New Jersey highlights is that the pathway for this project is these kinds of projects is so perilous. The moments and opportunities for them to be killed are so plentiful um, that really when you look at a project like the Big Dig, you have to look at it as a weird kind of creature, a, a strange survivor that somehow, somehow navigated all that and made it to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's take another call. We have Patty in Minneapolis on the line. Hello. Hi, Patty. How are you? We're good. Tell us, um, what's so, up? Well, um, we have a project in Minnesota and specifically going through Minneapolis called the Southwest LRT. And mm. it is a, a rail project to go out to the suburbs. Um, and it, its initial budget was $900 million. Um, its current budget is now $2.7 billion. And um, it, many of the um, overruns were caused by, like, some very initial poor planning and mm -hmm. um, in that they thought that they could fit light rail and the current rail that's on there in the same narrow corridor in the city of mm -hmm. Minneapolis. 
and we're, we've gotten a text asking us to remind folks of the size of the big dig. So we just heard about Minnesota's big dig, and what's sure. the, and what was the size of uh, Boston's? So just in raw numbers, yeah. Okay, the the final price tag was about fifteen billion when it was done, and for comparison, the earliest earliest estimates for the cost of this project, you know, before inflation, before everything, um, was two point two billion. Yeah. So that is that is the journey. <laughs> That's a pretty big um, inflation rate there. But um, I think what you know what the the project yeah. in Minneapolis highlights and what the big dig highlights is so you hear these numbers that are like, you know, oh it started at this and ended up at this, right? Started at 2 billion, ended up at 15 billion. Started at 900 million, ended up at 2.7 billion. And I mean what what I think is important to understand about the big dig and I think this is true of many other projects too is that it was probably always going to be a 10, 12, 15 billion dollar project, right? It's not like it it should have cost two or five or seven billion and it just got, you know, really messed up along the way. Like it was probably always going to be expensive to do everything, you know, that we wanted to do in this project. And so when you look at those cost numbers, a, lo a lot of the question I think you have to ask yourself is why was it misunderstood? or miscommunicated from the beginning, maybe deliberately. Um, there's a great uh, a book that came out this year by a scholar named uh, Bent uh, Flubjerg, who's a Danish scholar of mega projects. Um, and he describes in there really eloquently how politicians and public officials are of, of all kinds are prone to A, optimism bias, which most of us humans are. You know, mm -hmm. We think things are gonna be easier than they are. And also, there is a kind of built-in incentive um, to strategically misrepresent what a project is going to take. So people um, will support it. So people will support it. Yeah. Um, uh, here in New York City, Robert Moses, you know, the legendary builder yeah. of bridges and roads, this was part of his mantra, was like, you just, all you have to do is drive that first stake, right? Just get the approval to drive that first stake and then it'll, you know, then you're good. Then the pro it doesn't matter how much the cost goes up. It doesn't matter how disrupt disruptive it is. You know, it will happen. And so I think what we, one of the things we have to ask ourselves as a society is, okay, we've created a political, you know, operation for building infrastructure in which it's so hard to get projects approved and funded that to get a project in that door you know, there's all this incentive to kind of tamp down the estimates and make it look small and make it look cheap and easy. And then, OK, we'll deal with the overruns later. Um, and, and, and so I think that's part of what feeds this cycle of like optimism and disappointment and cost overruns because, you know, we had unrealistic expectations going in. Right. We have another call from Minnesota. We have Mike on the line. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you tonight? I'm good. good Tell us good. about your I, big dig project. Well, I think I have a little bit of an interesting insight on the project. I spent uh, from about 94 till I left in 99 in Boston, and I was a bicycle messenger while I was going to school. Wow. So I was, you know, daily driving around, riding my bike around, looking to see which way the traffic was coming from in any particular day. Different but every day, I, I assume. Yeah, they were they would change traffic flows every day, and of course, you know, being on a bicycle with skinny wheels, the the metal grates, the metal plates that they would put down to cover holes would change all the time. So you had to be yep. quite aware of what that was going on. But I just kind of wanted to uh, reiterate a little bit um, from a couple of callers ago, Dave, I believe it was, uh, just the magnitude of what this project was and is. Mm -hmm. is um, as an example, I had a delivery, I think I was probably on about the 53rd floor of one financial, one fin, yep. and, you know, we, we um, could store bikes in the loading dock and get in and out, and as I was coming out of the loading dock, after being up that high, I looked down, and I could see maybe five flights straight down, but they had safety yeah. stuff, you know, scaffolding and all that, so I couldn't even see the bottom of the tunnel. Wow. And I look back up at the building and I'm like, what is that's like 90 stories tall and within 50 feet of the loading dock, there's a, a tunnel that you can't yep. even see the bottom of, just the, the feet of that. And yeah. to couple that with the idea that what Market Street is between 
one fin and the tunnel and what was it a hundred years ago or so market street was waterfront so basically they they're building this under sea level it's just amazing to me yeah well well described mike thank you for that there were a couple of scary sounding newspaper headlines that came out in the mid 1990s when the project was really in full swing um where they realized that a few skyscrapers right next to the project were sinking just slightly. And we're talking about like, you know, fractions of an inch here. But still, when you're talking about a 50, 60 story building and, you know, as the caller described, some of the the foundations for these buildings are like, you know, very close to the project. I mean, it's right at their doorstep, digging down 100, 120 feet right next to a skyscraper. Um, so the people, yeah, it, it was anxiety provoking, I imagine, looking down from those windows. Hey, we're going to take another call. We have Charlie in Brooklyn on the line. Hi, Charlie. Hi, how are you guys? Um, I Good. live in Brooklyn. Great. I, I li- actually live right next to a highway and I would love for them to demolish it or bury it. Um, would, that, would that be the BQE? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Sunset Park, so. Um, but my story was that I, I worked with a bunch of, like, conservative kind of operating engineer guys uh, on the Hudson River dredging job hmm. um, near uh, north of Albany on the Hudson River. And the guy, uh, I, I promised him I would tell a story, but this guy said, oh, I would, I, I, I dug those tunnels and I would never drive through them myself. But he was a pretty wow. conservative he was not a pro infrastructure spending mm-hmm. guy, but then the other thing was I would I would love if you gave a little context, um, in terms of like how this did people view it as kind of healing the city from kind of all the mm. destruction that Urban Renewal had done, in yeah, fifties and maybe if you go into that. Like the stitching back of neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this was explicitly that. You know, the architects of this project saw it. It's funny, actually, when when the project got its federal funding, this was in the late 1980s, it was funded by the interstate program, right? The program that built the highways that tore the city apart. And so, you know, the project staff would go down to D.C. and they'd meet with federal officials and they'd make their presentation and make their case. And what these officials, you know, the state officials would tell me is like, we always had to sell it on the transportation benefits. Like, the highway, the federal highway officials, the interstate officials, were not interested in stitching the city back together. They had this kind of disparaging term for the project was, oh, this is just an urban beautification scheme. That that was their way of say, like, saying, yeah, this isn't really for us. Like, you know, if it's not destructive, it's not ours, was the way somebody paraphrased it to me. And so these, you know, the people working on the project would go down, they'd make their case. But in their heart of hearts, they knew this was about putting the city back together. They just couldn't say that out loud. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a real split screen, I think, for a lot of people working on it. Maybe because that then says something about all the other highways that have been built. You know, yeah. if, you, if you're pro-highway, you don't really want to talk about the need to take them down. Yeah. I was, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the BQE. I was in, we're, we're you know, doing the show from New York tonight. I was in Sunset Park today. <laughs> I walked underneath the BQE and it was a, a reminder for me, like, right, right. This is what Boston was like, right in the heart of the city. Let's try to squeeze in one more call. I may get myself into trouble here. Peter is on the line from Vermont, or in Vermont. Oh, hey, hello. Peter. What, we only we got a couple minutes left. All right. Um. Yeah. I, I had um. In those days, I, I was a bike courier and also a driver um, in and out of the city by you know little hatchback Toyota. And from the mid eighties to the mid nineties, um, and it, oh man, uh, the, the amount of time that I spent, um, uh, just filing through traffic at 10 miles an hour, um, on the old Southeast expressway and then the tunnel, uh, made it just a breeze. You just go right, just cruise on through most of the time. So I'd say it, it worked, and apparently that's how much that kind of thing costs. 
and we could do, you know, a hundred more. Like if they built tunnels instead <laughs> of redlining, greenlining cities, we'd be in a better place now. Yeah, there are so many neighborhoods and communities all across the country that were completely yep. split apart. Uh, and usually they were black and brown neighborhoods yes. split apart by the highways that were yeah. built in the 50s and 60s. And what's interesting is, you know, now we're seeing in the 2021 infrastructure bill that passed Congress a couple of years ago, there is money in there specifically for removing highways that divided neighborhoods, right? So, I mean, the, the thinking around this has not gone away. Um, and I think part of what's interesting about the big dig is it looms in the background of all of those conversations. Like if you want to tear down the BQE uh, or whatever the interstate highway is that divides your city, um, the big dig is an inescapable reference point. And I think as the caller described, it's, it's a point of inspiration, but it also is this cautionary tale. Um, so, so I think it, it holds it still holds that kind of mixed legacy. Yeah. Do you think your podcast is the first to actually make the argument that it wasn't such a boondoggle after all and that maybe we need to rethink our cynicism about these big projects? I mean, I, I try not to land too hard on like rendering a verdict. Is it a boondoggle or not? Um, in some ways, it was a boondoggle in that it was... To me, part of what makes a boondoggle is, is people feel like it's a boondoggle. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, if you think it's a boondoggle, it is a boondoggle. Um, and so I think there's a reason why it earned that reputation. But I do think w what this project has is the benefit of time. Um, there have been books written about the Big Dig. There was obviously no shortage of ink spilt about it at the time, documentaries and all the like. Um, and I think we have the benefit now, you know, several, a couple decades after the project was completed to kind of see the long view of its origins, its execution, and its effects. Um, and so I do, my hope is not that people will, you know, abandon any criticism of the Big Dig, but that this will complicate whatever your narrative of the Big Dig is, whatever you thought the project was, that this will complicate that just a little bit. That's a perfect place to end it. Ian Koss is the host of The Big Dig, a podcast from GBH News. Check out all nine episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to everyone who called in tonight or sent a text, particularly if you're in Boston. And thanks so much to Ian. And, uh, you know, it was great talking to you, and I loved the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and at Notes with Kai on Instagram. Theme music and sound design by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live show engineer. Rahima Nasa produced this episode. Our team also includes Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Susan Gabber, David Norville, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Our executive producer is Andre Robert Lee. I'm Nancy Solomon, in for Kai Wright. Thanks for joining us. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.